Episode six, Charlie's 20 point profile at 10.41 a.m. Yeah, first they came for everybody else and I laughed and I went along with it. Now they're coming for me. Feeding the alligator only means that they get eaten last. So Michelle Williams was on at the Emmys where she was wearing a very, very expensive dress and winning an Emmy, as it turns out, and complaining about how she doesn't get paid enough. She gets paid millions of dollars to be in pictures. She's particularly complaining because when they reshot all the money in the world because they had to write Kevin Spacey out of history and then they replaced him with Christopher Plummer and did a lot of the reshoot, she got paid like a thousand bucks for the reshoot and Mark Wahlberg got paid like $1.5 million for the reshoot. That's because he has a good agent. Her agent is crap. But instead of firing her agent, she decided to rail against the industry. I want to say thank you so much to FX and to Fox 21 Studios for supporting me completely and for paying me equally. Because they understood that when you put value into a person, it empowers that person to get in touch with their own inherent value. And then where do they put that value? They put it into their work. And so the next time a woman, and especially a woman of color, because she stands to make 52 cents on the dollar compared to her white male counterpart tells you what she needs in order to do her job. Listen to her. Okay, well, you know what Michelle Williams could do? She could just give up her jobs to women of color because it turns out that women of color can play like three quarters of the parts that she plays. I don't see her giving that up. Also, she should talk to her agent if she doesn't like what she got paid. And I'm sorry, making Michelle Williams the face of pay inequality, the woman's worth probably $20 million. I'm No. No. And that statistic that she is citing, 52 cents on the dollar, is a crap statistic. It has always been a crap statistic. It doesn't adjust for number of hours worked, for job type, for educational level, for years in the workforce, for job level. It doesn't, like, doesn't adjust for any of that. The, the, the fact that we are supposed to listen to lectures from Michelle Williams about equal pay, yeah, take it up, take it up with CAA. There's a fragment that's here today and they call it different fragrance that thinks your way, yeah, they call it Charlie, kind of young, kind of now, Charlie, kind of free, kind of wild, kind of free, kind of wild, kind of free, kind of wild, Charlie, kind of fragrance that's gonna stay and it's here now, Charlie. Charlie by Revlon, a most original fragrance. A fragrance to empower women. During the 1960s and early 70s, popular media images reflected the changes taking place in women's lives. A most significant change was the women who portrayed as having a life outside of home with concerns and aspirations other than being a wife and mother. In 1973, Charlie exemplified the intersection of changes in society and the perfume industry. It broke with the industry transitions by having a male name. New perfumes typically are introduced to the market in the fall, so they would be bought as a Christmas gift. Charlie broke tradition, releasing the fragrance in February 1973, which gave that fragrance an advantage that, that they did not have to compete with other brands. Importantly, the Charlie girl had self-confidence and interest of her life of her own. She was not longing to attract a man. Charlie was aimed at women who see fragrances as, as a fun and pleasurable item, not a sex appealer. The fragrance reflected the social trends of the early to mid 1970s, embracing the youth culture, not the women's movement. It ushered in an important new trend, the lifestyle fragrance. 
Revlon developed a 20-point profile of the Charlie Girl and projected these points in its print and television advertisement. And here is the Revlon profile of a Charlie user. Number one, irreverent and unpretentious. Two, breaking all the rules. Three, is not a Jewish princess. Four, is Jane Fonda in looks and attitude, or could be Carol Lombard. Number five, doesn't mind being a little outrageous or flamboyant. Six, makes her own rules and having fun or getting something done. Seven, has her own integrity based on her own standards. Eight, can be tough, believes rules are secondary. Nine, is a pace setter, not a follower. Ten, can be very soft, but is never passive. Eleven, flings herself into everything with enthusiasm and heart. Twelve, eats at Yellow Fingers, and I had to look that up. It's a restaurant on East 60th Street and 3rd Street, and it was the rage at the time. It was the epicenter of cutting-edge fashion where all the hip people hung out. 13. Believes she's different from other girls. 14. She is very relaxed about sex. 15. Has outgrown sharing a summer house. What? 16. Is bored with the typical fragrance advertising. 17. Wears pants to work, even though it's against the rules. 18. Mixes Gucci and blue jeans. 19. Loves roller coasters, hot dogs, Fortuny silks, it's pleated cotton silk evening dresses intended as underdress to, to be worn at home for very informal encounters. Number 20, has a sense of self and sense of commitment. from Baltimore. It's episode six of Kind of Free, Kind of Wow, conversation with Lori Green. Remember that Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not normally about Baltimore. And today, it really isn't. We are talking to Lori Green. Lori Green is an associate professor of anthropology at Stockton University in New Jersey, where she has taught since 1986. She is the founder and chair of the LGBTQ Youth Safe Space Initiative at Stockton University and an advocate for local LGBTQ community and the author of Drag Queens and Beauty Queens Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground. And let's get into that episode. Okay, so I have the ability to pass and, and uh, my voice is deeper or whatever, and I... I, I win. I, I'm lucky. I'm a white guy who is able to run around the, the world and, and most people don't really think too much about it. I always tell people, well, obviously I'm gay. Look at me. I'm adorable. Like there's no reason why, you know, I'd be single. So, I mean, it's real, real obvious, but you know, I remember looking at a picture of me. Uh, we were on a vacation. It was in, uh, I was seven, seventh grade. And my hand was limp, you know, in it. Like it was just like my arm was, uh, 
you know, just there, but my hand was limp. And I was like, don't ever do that again. Don't ever like just the, 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 the fact that my hand was limp. And my sisters made fun of it. They're like, look at your hand. You look gay in that picture. And, and I remember like getting to a point where I wasn't out yet, but I was old enough to, you know, I was trying to make that decision that I should be out. And the word, Hey, sounds like gay from a pet, you know, like, like close by. So I'd hear the word, hey, and I always thought, like, there's, call me gay. Like, there's the word gays out there. And I would get a tingle down my spine to a point where I would, I would just kind of, like, be physically sick. You know, like, I felt like I was, like, such, uh, such a lot, like a lying thing going on where I, I had no idea who I really was, or I knew who I was, but I knew that they would not like me once they found out who I was. And, uh, it was, it's just a lot. It's a lot to unpack that I could do, but I, you're right. Like my best friend is really, he's really gay and he seems gay and everyone knows he's gay as soon as he walks in the door. So it's initially I was embarrassed to have him go in public with him. And I found that, that, that was my fault. That, that, that's my issue, not his. And I had to fight through it. And, and now, you know, obviously I don't care, but the, 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 the idea that, um, that there was nothing wrong with him and that there's no reason that we should be limited on what we can do together because of my issue. It's a lot. Oh my God. Well, I could talk about this forever. <laughs> you know, um, there's actually a term for that in sociology. Oh, good. It's, You're the perfect. Yeah, one. <laughs> it's called, it's called nearing nearing it's like when you're in let's say you're in a room with a bunch of straight people and your friend walks in and he's like being really gay like uber gay and you're like oh god that's why won't he stop that and what they what sociologists believe that is it's like coming in contact with like a stereotypic what you see as a stereotypic rendition of your stigma in a room full of people that can see it that can judge you And really what it comes from is a fear of us being found out ourselves in that same room. Yes. It's not not about them. You know, as you said, it's about me. And that experience is called nearing. And, um, it's, it's, it expresses the internalized homophobia. Yeah. My cover's blown. My cover's blown by hanging with them. If he keeps doing that, he might blow my cover. Yeah. Uh And that's, that's what you're worried about, you know, and, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's a shame because if we were aware of that, then we, we probably wouldn't do it, <laughs> you know, but, yeah, yeah. but we don't, we don't learn about these things. You know, I mean, I think the topic of stigma, I really think it should be taught in like junior high school, like when they're able to understand it, because think about how many, how we suffered at that age. Um, yeah trying to make sure whatever stigmas we all had, whatever it is, my nose is too big, I'm fat, I have pimples on my face, I'm gay, I'm whatever. Um, you know, wor- they can be worse and worse and worse. Think about how we suffered. And and a lot of bullying comes from kids who have those same stigma, don't want anyone to see it. You know, so they beat up that kid that that shares their stigma instead of being found out themselves. I mean, I think it would be very useful um 
you know, in, in, you know, helping kids get better self-esteem and stopping a lot of these issues of bullying. If we actually taught this subject, yeah. the subject isn't don't bully. The subject is understanding why we bully, you know, uh, because even though you didn't say anything to him, there was like this internalized bullying going on that you were doing. You know, if you could have, if you could have heard your thoughts, it would have uh, been pretty mean to say, right? I mean, it would be pretty awful to say if you could have heard your thoughts. Oh, no, no. I was terrible. And I, I, I mean, I'm working through it, you know, I'm yeah. like working through it. I'm like, this is me. This is yeah. all this. But you're right. Like, I want to live a life where I can, like, slip into situations and not be found and not, but. When I have him around, it's my cover's blown. It'll always be blown. But exactly, and, and that's I can't have uh, my friendship for him is is strong, and I and I have to look at myself and say, okay, obviously this is my issue. And you know what? I have this conversation with a lot of gay guys. Like they they really they admire like RuPaul drag queens, but they don't want to be friends with them. You know what I'm saying? They they're like, okay, well, I admire the fact that they're are, are talented and drag queens, but I would never, never invite one into my house. You know, that kind of thing. Wow, you know this this you know when I did the um the drag queens and beauty queens book, I came across this so much. Like, um, you know, it's like drag queens are both revered at one level and sort of feared for that, you know, that connection to them. Like you're saying, the contagion of gayness that they carry. Yeah. Um, but also, um, you know, they're just like the reason drag queens are on the front lines as trans women are and trans men is that, you know, they're just a visual symbol of being unapologetically gay. Yeah. You know, and, and for those of us that aren't that secure or need that passing a degree of passing or, or covering in our lives for our, to be successful, we believe this is, uh, it's eternally dangerous to us, you know, to have these folks around. I, um, you know, and I know a lot of the drag queens that I've interviewed over the years and, and spoken to, they have trouble having relationships with gay men and they're gay men. You know, if they're yeah. gay men, they have trouble because of their um, careers. You know, they're, they're performance artists, you know, yeah. uh, but they they, you know, there's a there's a thinking about them that they're sort of like maybe maybe it's a bit misogynistic um, again that there's something about them that's too little bit too feminine, like too much of a woman. There's actually a woman in there. They're not gay. There's like a little bit of that thing. They don't want to be or be with in there. And uh, I found that I was shocked in the beginning about it, but I've, I had heard it so many times that it's hard to have a relationship. And in fact, not all of them, but a lot of the people that I know that are drag queens, I'm thinking in my head right now, aren't in relationships. Yeah. And I've never known them to be. I can think of one that is in serial relationships right now. <laughs> you know, think you in my head quickly, but because um, I, I think it's tough, it's tough for them. And I, I, I do think there's there's probably more in that to, to learn. You know, about why that's the case. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about the the trans. Uh, there's, I was at church this weekend, and a, a trans. Uh, person came up to the microphone and just we're allowed to share our thoughts and 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 uh she said i i don't want i don't want you to be friends with me to if you're pitying me there's no reason for pity he said if by chance that there is pity in your heart then there then you there, that's the issue is on you 
Um, it's not, you know, I don't want that friendship. And, um, I thought, do, do, do people pity like a, a transgender person, like to be friends with him? Like, oh, I accept you. I know you're less. I, I don't know. I, I do have some transgender friends that, but I don't, they're not really close to me. Like they're, I, you know, I don't, I would barely invite anyone into the house, but they're not in that level that I could invite them. I, I could, I guess. But then would I be pitying them? I don't know now. Now I have to think about I, my yeah. internal. <laughs> yeah, I think what she, what he or she's saying is, um, you know, that you, I don't want you to be friends with me because I'm trans and you want me to have friends. Like you feel like, you, you know, it's nice to be friends with me. Like you're going to prove that you're not transphobic by being friends. Yes. I, you know, and because who wants that? I mean, I don't want you to be friends with me for any reason, but you like me. Like as a human being, like my personality, I don't want you to be friends with me because of my job, my status, my money, my looks, you know, nobody wants that. And especially when it's something that's stigmatized, it feels like pity. I mean, it may not be pity, actually, it may be, but it it may feel like it regardless, because it's something that shouldn't be the subject of your friendship. You know, it shouldn't be a factor in it. Yeah. I guess that's what that that person was feeling. Yeah, and and I was like, "Wow, this is like aggressive." <laughs> we said this is an aggressive message at at ten o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, and I, I was like, "I think that the tack that some people take needs is aggressive because that's the only way that they feel like they're heard." Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, it, it stuck with me. Other people shared it, and that's the only thing I can remember. You know, it's it stuck with me and made me think. So. Uh, you know, then it was the right thing to do, you know. Um, yeah, I love my kids went to Quaker school. So like, I love meeting for worship. I thought that meeting, you know, I guess that's what you're talking about, of course, because there's, yes. there's uh, meeting for business too. But I used to love meeting for worship for them because they really had to learn how to, um, you know, express their themselves and their beliefs in an honest way um, and listen to other people, you know, and I thought, it's one of the greatest things about being Quaker and going to meeting is this this necessity to be able to listen and speak your mind at the same time. Yes. But also, it, it's a skill of being quiet and, you know, initially that and, and just sitting there and being uh, and initially, you know, the first time I well, it took months, but, you know, it's the removing the noise inside your, your head, whatever is going on. And sometimes there's just like loud noises that are, that are uh, in there. There's actual thoughts, but if you can remove those, you know, through time, then I look at the, the, what comes in, like what comes in at, at once everything's removed and why is it coming in? Like why, what is this vital? I know that I, I called up a friend of mine. I said, did you feed your snake lately? And he goes, no, <laughs> he goes, no. I said, well, I, it just came to me that, that you might need to uh, pay a little more attention to your snake. And he's like, wow, that's so random. I said, I know it just came up in my, in the Quaker meeting. I don't know, but, <laughs> but the, the, that's a, a, a wonderful experience to just allow your, to give your brain a break and remove all those, uh, with the noise inside of it. And I think that's a gift also. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you found that for yourself. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's a yoga, that's a yoga piece, uh, where, yeah. where, uh, when I, I, I was, uh, in search of a, a church that was really important. Like, I'm like, I'm going to find a church. So I got really involved in the Catholic church and I got to a point where they wanted me a, a Franciscan and I, and I declined it and, and moved on. So every, every Sunday I would walk in, like I lived in Philly. So I would just go to churches and and just experience whatever was going on and then i got i found the quaker one and i said okay i think this one's going to work for me well the one thing that i thought that i really liked about like i would pray and i would try to i would sit there and 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 uh, just try to get everything out of my my head but i would do deep breathing and that would help be relaxed enough to to clear my head and that's where i thought i was spiritual you know like oh this is the spiritual piece but when i started doing yoga i was like oh it's the breath that is 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 the spiritual piece is that i was breathing to to relax breathing to erase all everything out of my head and i thought oh that's spiritual but it's actual the breath work through yoga that I started doing, I went, Oh, that's yeah. the feeling. That's the feeling. <laughs> I can't agree more in the technique that I practice um, and teach. Um, you know, a lot of times you go to class and like the, the people just go breathe or follow your breath, but there's no instruction in it. And I, I can't tell you how in my style, the, how much time I spend teaching breathing and the importance of it. And, and like, I'm shocked to hear you say that breathing is spiritual because I believe that, but it's hard for me to convince people. Um, I think we need to remember that our breath is the only autonomic system in our body that we have control over. Um, we'll breathe whether we want to or not, as you know that if you tried to hold your breath as a kid. Um, but in protest, right? Um, eventually if you pass out, you will breathe. Um, but we also can, it's the only like system we can control and through it, we can control other things. So when we control our breathing, we can control our heart rate, which we can't control otherwise, right? Um, when we control our breathing, we can control the, uh, reactiveness of our nervous system. Um, at least our sympathetic nervous system. Um, when we control our breathing, we can um, we can understand what's going on inside of us. And, and I find this, you know, people know this intuitively. They know that their breath is them. You know, it's like the most intimate experience you can have with someone is being close enough to hear them breathing. You know, I mean, and we all know this because when I tell people in class, for example, in the style that I teach, the technique that I have is uh, you have to have an audible breath. Like you hear it, people hear it. And when people first start, they have such a hard time doing this. And I know it's because like when someone else can hear you breathe normally, they're very close. It's very intimate, right? You're right next to them. You're you're breathing on each other, right? And so hearing somebody, having someone hear you breathe, it's like, it's almost too intimate in a room of people you don't know. Like if I can hear you breathing, I know something about you I might not know otherwise. And, and, and people intuitively know this, but, you know, I always say that the most intimate experience you can have with yourself is listening to yourself breathe for an hour. I mean, you know, it's a very intimate experience with yourself. And, and so I'm thrilled to hear you say that, um, because I, I find that to be extremely true. And, um, 
it's why I don't, I think I don't need um, a religious or an institution of religion myself. Um, I've had people say to me stuff like, oh, Laura, you should come to the UUs, you know, uh, you love the Unitarians, you know, <laughs> or you can come to Quaker meeting, you know, and I say, I'm really not searching for anything. I, I think I have it, you know, <laughs> on my own. Um but that's just me. I, I think there's, you know, I, you know, we should go everywhere we can to find that sense of communing with everything around us. And if we need a community of people to do that, do it, you know? Um, and it, so I, you know, I, but I can't agree with you more about breathing and, um, and you can learn a lot about yourself by just stopping and looking at how you're breathing in that moment. Yeah. I, I- I do it automatically now because as soon as I get upset, my heart rate goes up. I can feel it. My, I see what happens to my breathing. And if I, I'll try to calm myself down, let's say by, by controlling the only thing I can, which is my breath, you know, <laughs> and there you go. And yeah. you hope that you settle yourself with that. And it, it is, you know, but I'm, but I'm someone that believes we're principally embodied, you know, we're not our minds. Um, and that our bodies have so much to do with influencing what we're thinking and how we experience the world, you know, and, and what we, how we interpret the world. We interpret it through our experience. And the only thing we can experience it through is our bodies, you know, and I think we underplay the importance of that, of our, you know, physical body and it's working in what our mind is like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The whole like religious to breathing, like experience, it would, like I, I was working at, uh, QVC and I was so stressed out and I could feel my, my, uh, uh, muscles, uh, uh, you know, tighten up around, you know, my, the, the, my stomach and, and, uh, my posture was bad. And I was, I was like, I said, I, I feel like I'm going to pass out or something. Like I feel stressed. This is stress. And it was all where it, it, it all I could do is breathe. And, and I realized that that was really the, the only like toolbox that I have. I'm curious, why can we bring that into schools? Like, is there any way to bring like yoga techniques of at least breathing into school? Because I feel the anxiety of like taking a test, like right before a test would be wonderful if everyone could just just breathe. I mean, I, I, I talked to a teacher and they said they're not allowed to do that because there'll be people who would think that you're forcing a religion. On them. Yeah. I mean, I know there are people, I have some friends who have, you know, brought those kind of programs into the schools, but yeah. And, you know, there, there may be, depending on your district, um, you know, there's always going to be somebody who thinks you're trying to push some weird religion, religious practice, um, on them, but you know, that's the state we've talked about this. That's the state of our culture right now, right? Is just to be basically, um, you know, people, uh, disagreeing with one another about everything. And, um, but it is a shame. And I think where they are doing this, I know I was listening, I remember hearing about a school where instead of detention, that's what they were giving the kids. Um, basically they would go in a room and learn how to meditate. Wow. And you know what, what, what a gift. Okay. And I thought, what a great idea, you know, um, and of course there's ways to do that without sitting still, which is may not be appropriate for kids, you know, um, but just, you know, techniques of breathing and stuff that make you focus. Cause all meditation is, is focused attention. It's not, not thinking it's not necessarily being quiet, you know, um, you know, some people chant when they meditate or, 
listen to music or, you know, it's not what people, I think it's not a narrow thing that people think it is. You know, it's much more um, just about trying to focus in a certain way to look at what's going on right now. Um, and maybe use that to look at what you did that got you into this detention today, you know, like, you know, let's just quiet down and think about it. We're not punishing you. You're going to sit here and think about it. Um, and I thought that that seems so in the right direction. You know, I don't, obviously it depends how people are pulling that off, you know, what they're actually doing in there, if it's effective or not. But I think if it's done properly, it would be very effective. Um, and, you know, much more likely to be responded to in a positive way um, by the kids who are in that, you know, because I remember what it was like for me when I was in school in detention, people were just like thought it was, you know, they were just snarky about it. They just thought it was a joke. You know, uh, it's ba- sort of a badge of honor. How long do I have to sit in here with like a grumpy look on my face, you know, doing nothing, you know, looking disruptive. Um, But yeah, to turn it into an opportunity for developing strategies for coping with some of your less desirable emotions and behaviors would be a great idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it really would be. Uh, this is, uh, I had another idea and it wasn't my idea. It's something I heard maybe on a podcast or something where we, we wouldn't identify a child, any gender until, you know, maybe they were six or seven. Because the the cues of like oh boys wear blue and, and girls wear pink and man up and tough up and like allow a child to be uh, to express himself any way they feel before they're they're kind of told how to do it now the, whoever made this decision I mean is saying it better than I could but th- what they were saying is like withhold any kind of gender roles until they're older until they are developed enough to, to know where they need to go because people are gender, uh, uh, gender ranges are all over the place kind of like, and, uh, and they're not allowed to fully evaluate who they are. And I know that when you talk about me passing, I would be different. I would, I would, I can guarantee I would be a different person if I had that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that would entail, obviously this is, tough nut to crack there because that would entail changing the whole culture, especially since ostensibly or supposedly we're in, we're in like the, the younger generations are don't care about gender yet. They have these gender reveal parties where they want to know the sex of the fetus before it's born. And then they want to celebrate their, their sex before they're even born. And I, this is something I can't wrap my head around having three kids. Like, I'm like, that sounds like you guys care way more about gender than I ever did. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even want to know what the sex of my kids were because it's like, to me, like there are so few surprises in life. And that was one of them. That was a good one, you know, a big one. And I just, I wanted to be surprised. Like, because in utero, you wouldn't find out like if it was a boy or girl, or you're like, just don't tell me. I didn't, I never did. I mean, I, well, first of all, when, when I was having children, um, which, you know, my son just had uh, a birthday yesterday. Um, uh, my kids are pushing 40. Um, 
you know, know. didn't have the same technology. You know, we were they, people were not just getting ultrasounds. You got an ultrasound when something was wrong. They thought something was wrong. You know, so you you didn't know. Or if you got an amniocentesis, you would know the sex, but nobody got them unless you were over forty and you had to. You know, so now they routinely do tests which could show the gender of the the baby, or the sex of the baby, I should say. Um, based on what they see on the images, right, of an ultrasound, or if they do obviously a, a, um, amniocentesis, they're going to have the DNA sample. But I mean, I, if, if I had that technology and, and I did with my last one, um, I told them, no, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, don't tell me. Um, so I think when we're celebrating a child's gender before they're born, we've got a long way to go with that kind of a thing. If we're going to make it so they, you know, we don't have gender until they're five or six years old. We've got a long way to go with that. Oh yeah, long way to go. How would you uphill? You know, how would you get that everyone to buy in on it? Where, you know, like uh, no, I don't answer to that. The stress on on boys right now to, you know, to be to be uber masculine and and uh, not to express their feelings and and to man up and not cry or show emotion. Uh, you know, like the, the idea that thinking is masculine, but, uh, feeling is feminine is, uh, I can only tell you that I ran cross country and I did a mile to this day. Uh, it was the first mile I ever ran in my life and a girl almost beat me. And, and all they were screaming is like, don't let a girl beat you. Don't let a girl beat you. And I was, I had nothing left in the tank and she didn't beat me, but that whole last leg of that mile of terror that this woman's going to beat me. It's like, it's so unnecessary. I don't know. It's just like, it's a, it's and a that lot. Whole, you know what? That whole, a woman don't let a girl beat you when you become an adult becomes, you know, how you treat your female boss or, you know, how you look at the person again on your, committee you're working on the woman who seems to be very more competent than you or you know get more done than you and, yeah. and there and there goes the pattern you yeah. know oh yeah so, yeah I, you know, I can only tell you the word bitch has been used many times to talk about uh not me not, not from my mouth but from <laughs> yeah i'm an angel but um from from co-workers they're like oh she's such a bitch where they wouldn't say that about a guy or they expect women on in, in groups, some of them to be the busy bees of it all. Like you're the one taking notes. You're the one doing this. You're doing that where it wouldn't even be an option for, for a male to uh, do that busy work. Like uh, I, I'm the, yeah, they I'm want the, them to do the work, but not the important work. They don't want to get the, you know, they do the important work. Then they're they're Cause I've been called this. Um, there's somebody that, Oh, you have to have it your way. You know, you, you have to do every, you have to, you have to micromanage everything, you know, well, no, you guys didn't do it. So I did it, <laughs> you know, and that's what happened. But I, you know, I feel that same thing that you're talking about, yeah. which is there's something wrong because a woman did this and I didn't accomplish it. So she must be, there must be something wrong with her. She must be overly aggressive or now uh, she's the bitch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 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 Uh-huh. Exactly. It's like there is no term for a guy who's a bitch in business. You know what I'm saying? There is nothing. What is the equivalent to a man? Like a, a woman's a bitch in business. 
what is the equivalent to that for a male? I don't think there is one. Well, that, that tells you something that it really isn't. Well, there's certainly bad bad names you could call a guy. I've done it. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh yeah, he's a dickhead. Yeah, are, blah blah blah. You know, what they say like there's there's like there are a lot of different terms for women, uh, pejorative terms about that have to do with their sexuality, but none for men. You know, I mean, we we create terms of negative terminology for for people based on what we already believe about them. You know, um, the ways that they can fail. You know, so when women are aggressive, we have lots of negative terms for not, but not so many for men. You know, um, when women are sexually active or promiscuous, we have lots of bad terms for that, but not for men. You know, we have to use female terms. We have to call a man a whore. You yeah. know, you know, we don't, yeah. <laughs> we, we, um, because we don't judge men on those things like we judge women. And, and I'm, I'm certain there's things for men too, but, but, um, yeah. And it's funny because, one of the things I saw again when I was studying drag is if you look at the way that drag queens read each other and, and in particular, but gay men in general, the way they read each other, it's it's always based on those same features that usually women are chastised for, like how fat you are, like you're not pretty enough, you're not good looking enough, or you're sexually promiscuous or, you know, you're bitchy, you know. Um, and really what they're doing is reading men by calling them negative things that they normally society would ascribe to women. And I found that very interesting. Um, wow. That's, that's, I've never heard that before, but that's a hundred percent correct. On the one hand, I think drag queens present themselves as let's say fat or promiscuous or sloppy you know what I mean? Things that just aren't feminine, aren't aren't uh, correct, fe- correctly feminine. Do you know what I mean? Things that women have to watch themselves, police themselves for. Um, I think they do it. If we look at it in a way that's pro woman, it's that what they're pointing out is look at the things women are chastised for. This is absurd. And the other reading is that, of course, the opposite that, you know, that. God, thank God we're not really women, you know? So I tend to go with the first one that they're pointing out the absurdity of the kinds of ways that women are judged when they put on those clothes, they get to be judged like that as well. I prefer that explanation, but I, if you look at, just look at it, it, it's so interesting. And it speaks to our, all the things that drag can tell us about our gender norms in general, you know, and, and what a complex and interesting performance art it is. And you would say that, like, I got dolled up. I did the best I could with my makeup hair and it's still not enough. It's still, I still have flaws. I'm still, you know, a mess or, you know, I'm still not perfect. You know. And well, that's what reading points out, right? When you yeah. read somebody, I mean, it's like, you think you're all that, but you know, oh my God, girl, you don't know it. But like when your eyelashes is falling off, like uh-huh. there's nothing more embarrassing than that. It's just a freaking eyelash, you know? <laughs> But that's the kind of thing women have to, you know, are policed on all the time. Um, um, we're, we're, we have like seven minutes left. Do you, okay. we have another half hour book. Do you want to continue or do you think you, we hit the tank? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, well, I want to tell you why I decided to, to reach out to you. So yeah, okay. I'm going to keep on going. I want okay. to build it up. I want to build it up as a. <laughs> let's go, let's go to the next one then. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Let's uh, do see it. you on the other side again. All right.
got no time for me. You've got big things to do. Well, my fine chickadee, I've got hot news for you. I've got your number. I know you inside out. You ain't no eagle scout. You're all at sea. Oh yes, you brag a lot. Wave your own flag a lot. But you're unsure a lot. You're a lot like me, and I've got your number. And what you're looking for? And what you're looking for just suits me fine. We'll break the rules a lot. We'll be damned fools a lot. But then why should we not? How could we not? Episodes now. They are available. The link is in the show notes. Episode six is over. Episode seven, The History of New York Avenue, is up next. You can binge all now. All conversations are available for your listening pleasure. And end of episode.